0: I find it interesting that God has the power to deliver Paul from suffering, but he didn't do it. Actually, he led him to suffer for the sake of the gospel. We have a hard time comprehending. Welcome to the MANA Bible Lessons Podcast. MANA is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Fellow students, if you would open your Bibles to Second Timothy uh, chapter 1. We're going to uh, continue in the series on Timothy that Paul wrote uh, for the next few weeks. You know, we really do life together and sometimes we don't know how much we need each other until we need each other. And uh, so it's a blessing, Daryl. Thank you. And remain much in prayer. There are prayer requests that we know about, and then there are many of us in the room that are carrying burdens that um, we actually really don't know how to pray for. And Romans 8 says, The Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And for those of you that have not yet been to the service, Pastor Roger talked about Father knows best very, very, very timely. So I would encourage you to attend the 11 o'clock service. So back to 2 Timothy. Paul, uh, just to give you a little chronology here, he began... The first of his three missionary journeys about 47 A.D. He uh, did three missionary tours throughout the region of Galatia near uh, east, what's called western Turkey, the Anatolian Peninsula. After those journeys, he was placed under house arrest by the Roman authorities about A.D. 60. And he was held for two years in house arrest, chained only to a single soldier uh, in Rome. And the book of Acts ends with Paul still in custody. So it's about A.D. 60. History tells us he was freed about A.D. 62, about 24 months in house arrest. He had, was free to receive visitors, and he used that as an opportunity to evangelize the entire praetorian guard. So if Paul was chained to a soldier for four-hour shifts, the soldier got the gospel and couldn't go anywhere. So it was uh, they, they thought they had Paul captive. Actually, they were captive to the gospel during that four-hour period. So Paul and Timothy, after he's freed in A.D. 62... Revisit the city of Ephesus, which is a church there is in serious trouble. Rob is going to put a, a map on screen that's going to give you kind of a look at the eastern Mediterranean area. You're going to see the cities of Rome uh, on the Italian peninsula, and then you'll get way over to the Anatolian peninsula in eastern Turkey. You're going to see Ephesus, and Macedonia is in northern Greece. Crete is the island near the south of the, the map. Uh, Nicopolis is a city in eastern Uh, Greece, just south of Macedonia, and then Troas as well. So let me give you the context. The church in Ephesus has really, really serious problems. There's false teachers from within the church. They're greedy for gain, and they're creating a lot of strife and division within the body of Christ at Ephesus. They're prostituting the gospel for money, and they're leading many people astray. They're promoting themselves. They're not promoting Jesus Christ. So Paul left Timothy to pastor the church, at Ephesus, while well, he traveled to northern Greece, you're going to see on your map there on the screen, northeastern Greece, to Macedonia. That's a region, now it's a separate nation. About a year later, Paul's in Macedonia, and he writes his first letter to Timothy in about AD 63. So he's been out of prison for about a year. Timothy's been in pastoring the church in Ephesus for about a year, and they have really tr- serious troubles. So Paul writes Timothy, the first letter of Timothy, and he instructs him. Here's how you deal with these false teachers. And by the way, church at Ephesus, this is how the family of God should behave within the body of Christ. So he's really writing that letter. They're called the pastoral epistles, First and 2 Timothy and Titus, because they're written to two young pastors, Timothy and Titus. Paul then visits the island of Greece, way down in the southern part of the map, where he and Barnabas had planted churches before, and he leaves Titus to... Uh, minister to the church in Crete to set in order what remains, because that church is a mess as well as the church in Ephesus. By the way, just in case you're wondering, there's no church without problems. Just so you wonder, and if there is, don't attend it because you'll bring trouble when you come. Right? You know, <laughs> I tell people if you if if you're looking for the perfect church, by all means don't attend because as you, soon as you show up, it's not perfect anymore. Right? Uh, So Paul then leaves Crete and goes north to Nicopolis, which is the eastern part of Greece. And he writes his letter to Titus from that city. Now, just to give you the large historical context, in AD 64, about half the city of Rome burns. Rome, at this point, has about a million people in it, so it's the largest city in the empire. The city of Alexandria down in Egypt, where they grew all the grain for the empire Probably two to three hundred thousand. The city of Ephesus probably has about one hundred and seventy-five thousand people. So just to give you some context, so Rome is the largest city. About half the city burns. Nero is the emperor at this point in time, and he is descending into madness. He's he's really uh, probably clinically insane as well as evil, and it. And he really was thought to have set the blaze. He had a lot of building projects in mind. He had these grand designs for what he wanted to do with Rome, but there were too many old buildings in the way. So there's a a fair amount of historical precedent to suggest that he may have set that fire in order to make room for his building projects. Well, the city of Rome, the citizens are furious, they're frightened, and they're livid. And so Nero needs a scapegoat. So he blames the Christians for setting the fire and he really, really ramps up the persecution. A lot of Christians are martyred, uh, burned, torn apart by wild animals in the arena, et cetera, as a result of Nero needing a scapegoat for the Roman fire. Paul is now at Troas, which is uh, near uh, the Eastern part of the Mediterranean, and he's rearrested in about AD 65. So he's been out of prison a little over three years. He's rearrested in 65, maybe the first part of 66, He's a very prominent Christian, and he's arrested and accused of arson, probably of arson uh, in Rome. He's also re-arrested for propagating an unlawful religion. In the Roman Empire, you could propagate a religion as long as it uh, commanded emperor worship. You could have lots of gods. They were polytheists, but you had to worship the emperor. And, of course, Christianity says, no, 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 no. There is only one god. You worship one god. We don't worship human beings at that point. So Paul was promulgating the worship of the one true God and, of course, the Roman authorities found that treasonous and so they arrested him. They threw him in the dungeon at Manertine, Manertine prisons in Rome. It's literally an underground dungeon. They had him chained down there, very dank, very dark, very unhealthy. And from that prison, he writes this letter, 2 Timothy. It's the last writing we have from him in the New Testament before he was beheaded on Nero's direct order on the Ostian Way, which is uh, 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 the main road out to the west of Rome. Probably be headed in 66, late 66, early uh, AD 67. So this letter to Timothy is the last writing that Paul has, that we have of him, last recorded document. And last words can be lasting words. And this letter is going to certainly prove to be that case. Paul is about 63 years old now. He writes to his young son in the faith, his protege in the faith, his disciple, Timothy. Timothy's probably in his late 30s, so there's probably on the order of 25 plus years differential. Paul knows that his death is within a matter of months, even weeks. He's not sure, but he's pretty sure it's very, very close. And he wants to pass the torch of faith to the next generation. So this letter is his swan song. It's really his spiritual last will and testament, which is rather interesting because I, I find it intriguing that if I knew I was going to die in a couple of months, it would focus my mind intensely. I'm not sure what I'd be thinking about, but I'll guarantee you there's a whole lot of things I would not be thinking about. Because there's a lot of stuff in this life that doesn't matter if you know you're leaving in the next 60 days. Amen? Okay. None of us know. So live today as if it could be your last one. So in this letter, Paul is writing to Timothy. Now, Timothy's a man with a weak stomach. We know he's got a frail constitution, and he's a timid spirit. He literally is fearful. He's not a strong and bold character like Paul. And in this letter, 2 Timothy, Paul writes Timothy and he really exhorts him and encourages him to remain strong in the faith. And the theme is really, be a good soldier of Jesus Christ. You're in the battle, you're in the warfare, you're surrounded by hostile culture, you're surrounded by intense persecution, remain a soldier of Jesus Christ. So Let's pick up the narrative in chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, an apostle is a sent one. An apostle is one who is sent with a message. And that message is not their message. They are sent with the message. So they're commissioned to carry a message with the authority of the sender. Right? So the authority of the sender is on the basis upon which they carry that message. And in this case, God himself is sending Paul with a message. So he is one sent on a commission. And of course that commission came right after the road to Damascus. Christ Jesus met Paul on the road to Damascus, uh, threw him off the, his horse, ground his face in the dirt, gave him a revelation of Jesus Christ, the glorified Christ on the throne, Paul surrendered his life to Christ, and right after that, in the city of Damascus, Paul uh, received his commission from the Lord through Ananias to carry the Gospels to the Gentiles. So his job, his job description, was to be a missionary to the Gentiles. By the way, Paul didn't volunteer for the job, right? God called him while he was busy persecuting God's people, which I find utterly intriguing because... (laughs) Paul later wrote in Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were what? Sinners. While we were at war with God, He died for us, which is remarkably amazing grace. So God took the initiative to save, to save Saul, the murderer, and change him into Paul, a missionary. So Saul, the enemy of God, became Paul, the emissary for God, which is intriguing, and it's one of God's great, stories of grace. Paul was now an ambassador, a representative of his heavenly king here on planet earth. Paul says he was called as an apostle, I love this phrase, according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus. Eternal life is really the whole point of the gospel, is it not? I mean to move from death to life. 1 John 5 tells us, and the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life. And this life is located in a specific place, in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. Here's the principle. No Jesus, no life. No Jesus, no life. Eternal life is pretty simple. Pretty simple equation. If you know Jesus, you will know life. If you don't know Jesus... You will have no life. So Paul's close relationship with Timothy is very, very evident by his address of Timothy when he calls him his beloved son. Verse 3. I thank God, whom I serve with a clear conscience, the way my forefathers did, as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day, longing to see you, even as I recall your tears, so that I may be filled with joy." For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Here's the principle keep doing what God has gifted you to do. What you don't use, you will lose. Keep doing what God has gifted or called and equipped you to do. What you don't lose, you will surely lose. So Paul says, I'm serving God. To serve God, obviously, to serve anybody means you're working for the benefit of another. You're creating value for someone else. That's the whole point of service. So when we use the word minister, minister just means to serve. I am a servant. You are a servant. We are all ministers of Jesus Christ, for Jesus Christ, and the fact that we serve Him, we work for Him. Paul says, look, I'm not lazy, I'm very diligent, because I'm serving God with a clear conscience. A clear conscience is essential. The story is told about a man who complained to his doctor, I've been misbehaving, Doc, and my conscience is bothering me, he complained. And you want something that will strengthen your willpower, asked the doctor. Well, no, said the fellow, I was thinking of something that would weaken my conscience. (laughs) The best way to have a clear conscience is stop misbehaving. Really simple, you know, stop doing what you shouldn't be doing. Pastor Roger is wont to say, when you feel guilty, most of the time it's because you are, right? That's the red light in the dashboard that says, No oil pressure. You better stop where you're going. You're going to burn the engine up, right? Before Jesus met Paul on the road, he did not have a clear conscience. He didn't have a pure conscience. He was at war with God. Before Jesus met us, we were all at war with God. Amen? Before we surrendered. Saul, the enemy of Jesus, received a clear conscience after he surrendered, after he repented of his sins, and accepted Christ's forgiveness. There is a tremendous power in a clear conscience, and that comes through confession and repentance and turning away from sin. And there's power in a clear conscience, and Paul has that. For the rest of his life, Paul says, I have worked to maintain a clear conscience because I never forget what's coming in the future. This is an extraordinarily good verse to put in front of you every day. Acts 24:15. There shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. In view of this, in light of this coming resurrection, Paul says, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience, both before God and before men. You know, none of us know how many days we have on earth. Here's what I can guarantee you. It's less than what you think. And it may be more than you want. Because when you're 95, we're in diapers, you're probably going to be real ready to get out of here. I know people like that, right? So Paul says a clear conscience is a powerful thing, and we need to maintain that clear conscience by staying intimately connected with Jesus every day. One of the best ways to maintain a clear conscience is not tolerate sin in your life. Any. When you are aware of sin, of course, the cure for that is immediate confession. And then you're cleansed and you have a clear conscience again. And that's the power that Paul had. And then Paul shares an interesting benefit of being in prison. You know, I, I looked at that and I thought, I, I don't know that there's a lot of benefits in being in the dungeon. But Paul says, one of the benefits of being in prison is I have lots of time to pray. And he says, I've been praying for you, Timothy, night and day, night and day. Now, it's pretty clear that Paul loved Timothy and missed him. He hadn't seen him in some time. We really don't know whether Timothy was present with Paul when Paul was rearrested in AD 65-66. But it's clear that Paul is lonely. He's a human. And he wants companionship with Timothy. So he asks him to come as soon as possible. I would have to say... And I'm I'll, I'm open to counsel on this, but I'm going to recommend something to you. I think one of the most powerful, best ways to love someone is to pray for them. Because Almighty God can do for them what you and I cannot do. And Almighty God knows what they need more than we do. Even if we want to help and we want to make a difference, I think we should, obviously, But God can do more than we can. So continue to pray. And Daryl has really highlighted that in beautifully powerful ways this morning. Prayer matters. You never stop praying. I don't care if you don't get the answer you want. You continue to pray. Pastor Roger talked about it. Ask, seek, knock. Keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. Sometimes we pray for children and grandchildren and lost loved ones in this class for months and months. We'll pray for years and years. We'll pray for decades. We'll pray until Jesus calls us home. Doesn't matter because they need to know the Lord and prayer honors Jesus Christ and it moves us toward him and makes us like him. So just an encouragement, pray without ceasing. Timothy's life gave abundant evidence of his sincere faith and Paul acknowledges that. He says, your faith has multi-generational roots. Number one, Grandmother Lois apparently was the first one to come to faith in Christ, and then Mother Eunice, and both his grandmother and his mother probably came to faith as a result of Paul's preaching their very first missionary journey. So Timothy has a, a history of a family with a godly example, and these two women had left an indelible impact on the lives of Timothy because likely when Paul came for the second missionary journey, Timothy had already become a Christian, and his... The life he was living had such an impact that Paul said, I want to make you part of my missionary team at that point. You know, the reality is we're all making an impact. You make an impact on people around you. You did this morning, and you will this afternoon, and you will tomorrow. The question is, what kind of an impact are we having? Right? We want to have an impact for the gospel. And apparently, Timothy has sincere faith, but he's pretty timid by nature. he's not physically robust, and he's in a church where there's a lot of opposition, a lot of false teaching. So he's got a lot of human opposition. And apparently it led into some degree of spiritual neglect or apathy because Paul reminds them, kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you. That word kindle afresh literally means fan into flames. It means stir up. Like, have you ever had a fire in your fireplace and You let it go down and there's just embers, right? It's just kind of coals. He says, blow that up, stir that up, get that flame open. It's like a blacksmith who uses bellows. You ever watch the blacksmith work? And they blow air onto that fire and make it hotter. So it literally is a command to maintain at full flame your God-given abilities for ministry. Timothy had already been given everything he needed by God himself to complete the work God called him to do. Because whatever God calls you and I to do, He's already equipped us to do. Every single one of us in this room have been given at least one spiritual gift, and many of you have two or three. Our spiritual gifts are given to us by the Holy Spirit for the purpose of ministry. They are to be exercised, not sat on. And those gifts are really really only used for three things. To exalt Jesus Christ, to evangelize the lost, and to edify the church, to build up the body of Christ, right? Right? So every one of you has a spiritual gift. Every one of you have a spiritual job description that God wants you to use that gift for. He didn't give you the gift not to use. He gave you the gift to utilize. Timothy's gifts probably pastor, teacher, and Paul says, "Don't neglect that gift." I know that you're timid. I know you don't feel good. I know you're in a it's, you're in a period of really intense opposition to church. I want you to use that gift. Because all fires need attention or they'll go out, right? And all our faculties need to be exercised or they will atrophy. You know, we we, we use that term, use it or lose it. That applies to our spiritual life as well as just our physical life, right? Even our faith muscle can get flabby unless it's exercised, right? Romans 4, fascinating chapter, beginning in verse 20, talks about the the faith of Abraham. And it's an intriguing phrase because Romans 4.20 tells us that Abraham grew strong in faith. So his faith at once was weaker and it grew stronger. And you say, well, how did Abraham's faith grow stronger? How did he get that spiritual exercise? Well, God had promised Abraham and Sarah a son when Abraham was 75 years old and Sarah was 65. That's when they received the promise. And God made him wait 25 years. Now, if you think your faith isn't being stretched when you look in the mirror and go, it ain't getting better. <laughs> She's 65 and I'm 75, and every year went by, you see the body getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And you're going, God told us going to have a kid. God said we were gonna have a biological child. Not by another woman. Not by adoption. We're going to have our own child. And every, I don't know if they had mirrors back then, but every year you look and you go, getting a little creakier. Uh-huh. God gave them 25 years of spiritual weight training. And faith training, right? That's a quarter century. Sometimes we ask God for things in our prayers, and they don't happen. You've all experienced that, right? Unanswered prayer. That's what we call it. No, you've got an answer. You're only going to get one of three answers. Yes, no, wait. That's the one we don't like. Yes or no. Yes is great. No is, we argue. Wait is... That's where you get your faith stretched. That's where you say, I'm going to wait on the Lord, which means my confidence is in Him not in myself, because most of the time we ask for things based on our perception, which is very limited because we're very human. And God, of course, sees the end from the beginning for all eternity. So what God has called you and I to do, he has equipped us to do, and we are not to ignore or neglect his call and get spiritually flabby. We are to exercise and kindle a frame and fan into flame the gift that God has given us and use it or His glory, whatever that happens to be. So Paul tells Timothy, don't let your fear and your timidity get in the way of completing God's call on your life. Verse 7, I love this verse. For God has not given us a spirit of fear or timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Verse 8, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, or have me as prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher." And that is one long sentence. Amen? Here's the principle. Because we have been given God's divine power, we should proclaim the gospel without fear or shame. Because we have been given God's divine power, we should proclaim the gospel without fear or shame. Timothy's got a couple of problems. He's timid, he doesn't feel good, and he's younger. He's in his mid-30s, he's in a Jewish church, Christian church, where most of the people he's leading are older, and he's got an opposition from false teachers that are also probably older than him. And Paul says, that fear you're feeling did not come from God. It is a refusal to believe in the power of God and the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. He says, that spirit of fear, that did not come from God because you have the Holy Spirit. Every one of us has God, the Holy Spirit, living inside us. We receive the gift of the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation. When Jesus went back to heaven, he sent the Holy Spirit from heaven to live inside his followers permanently here on earth. And the Holy Spirit does many, 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 many things in your life and my life, most of which we are completely unaware of. And when you look at how the world behaves, they behave badly because they do not have the power of God in them. Sometimes we don't behave as we should, and we have the power of God in us. And that's not because the power of God is anemic, it's because we're disobedient, right? So the Holy Spirit, the primary purpose of the Holy Spirit's coming was to empower those who follow Jesus to live the Christian life and to effectively witness to the world. And of course, that requires divine power, and Jesus promised that would take place when He ascended back into heaven, and it took place... In Acts, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus had said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Now we know that on Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came with such power that over 3,000 souls were saved in one day. You and I have that same Holy Spirit available to us living inside us, and he has given us today his power, his love, and his discipline. And Paul says, Timothy, you have no excuse and no reason to be ashamed of the gospel. And by the way, 21st century church, neither do we. We have that same power. And that word power, the Greek word is deutimus. It literally means dynamite. So the power of God, the Holy Spirit, is the dynamite of God. And the Holy Spirit gives us that divine energy, that divine power, to witness and to serve Him. Many of us struggle with that because we try and fulfill the Christian life in our own strength. And that is a recipe for frustration. Because God commands us to do things that are absolutely impossible without Him. Love your enemies. Try that in your own strength. Really? Really? I mean, the, the, the Bible is filled with commands for the church to do things that are impossible to do without the indwelling Holy Spirit. That's why he says, live a life of dependence and prayer on the Holy Spirit. See, we've not only been given the power to witness, we've been given the motivation because the Holy Spirit is the one, only one who gives us love for other people. He says, you've been given the power of the Holy Spirit and the love. Now, that's unconditional care for lost souls. Do you know how much I care about lost souls without Jesus lives in me? I don't because without Jesus Christ, we're all selfish. That's the nature of the beast. So we say, how can I love people like Jesus loved people? You can only do that because the Holy Spirit lives within you and he will give you that love for the lost. God gives us his love for others so that we can see them like he sees them as opposed to seeing them like we see them. And of course, love is the opposite of selfishness. Selfishness leads to fear because it focuses on what I can lose. I find it intriguing that Paul says, Timothy, join with me in suffering for the gospel. And you're going, boy, that's a strange dinner invitation. Come to dinner and suffer. Whoa, I thought I came to dinner for the goodies. Didn't we come to Jesus to feel good? Suffering for the gospel, right? Being obedient, bringing the gospel to the lost because love motivates you selflessly to share the love of Jesus with others, and wherever God leads you, He will provide and care for you. And the last thing He gives us is the word love, uh, uh, a sound mind. Fear, no fear, faith, love, and a sound mind. And a sound mind is the word related to the word sober, sensible, self control It literally says, God gives us the ability to discipline our desires. God gives us the ability to control our appetites. When we surrender our lives to Jesus, the Holy Spirit gives us the power to say no to what? The flesh, right? It gives us the ability to do that. Now, we live in a culture where self-control is not valued. How many of you see advertisements that say, just say no to yourself? You're not that important. Just say no to yourself. I mean, it says what? You deserve a break today, right? Have it your way. If it feels good, you should do it. It's all about me. And Paul says, no, 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 no. It's not all about you. It's all about Jesus and others. And God has given Timothy every everything he needed to do what God called him to do. And he gives you and I everything we need to accomplish the job description that he's given us. So Paul says, in light of all that, don't be ashamed. Don't be embarrassed. Don't be regretful. Don't be remorseful. Remember when Adam and Eve sinned? It says their eyes were opened, and they knew they were naked. And the first thing they did is they tried to hide, to cover, and to run from God. Shame always makes us want to hide. And human race has been hiding from God ever since the Garden of Eden because we know we're guilty. And Paul says to Timothy, Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Stop fearing out there because you have the dynamite of God living in you. You have been forgiven, so you don't need to feel guilty. And God the Holy Spirit lives in you, so there's nothing to be afraid of. So Paul says, Timothy... Stand up for the gospel, proclaim the gospel, even though you may be suffering. See, Paul is suffering because, in case you didn't notice, the world hates the truth. Followers of Satan don't want to hear the truth, and that, of course, leads to their opposition. Paul says, don't be afraid to join me in suffering for the gospel if that's what God has for your life. I find it interesting that God has the power to deliver Paul from suffering. Yes? But he didn't do it. Actually, he led him to suffer for the sake of the gospel. And we in the West who live indulgent lives, we have a hard time comprehending that. Because we have been told, with the best of intentions, that Jesus will solve all your problems. He will. But that does not mean that this life is a cakewalk. It doesn't mean there are not problems. God blesses us with problems in order to draw us closer to Him so that His power can be made manifest through us. As a matter of fact, if you don't have a problem in your life you can't solve, you know what you will do? You will not pray. Because if you can fix every problem in your life, who are you going to trust? You're going to stress yourself. So God routinely will allow problems in our life that we can't solve to draw us closer to Him, yes? So when He solves the problem supernaturally, we give Him praise and Him glory, and our faith in Him is strengthened, and our testimony to the world is unleashed because His power is now made evident. Verse 12, For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, And I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Here's the principle. The better you know Jesus, the more you will trust him. The only safe place for your soul is in his hands. The better you know Jesus, the more you will trust him. The only safe place for your soul is in his hands. Most people will not come to that conclusion really by experience until pretty close to D-Day. Some who have looked death in the face understand that right now. So salvation is entrusting your life to Jesus. When we came to Christ, we said, Lord, I give my life to you. I'm trusting you for the givenness of my sins. I'm trusting you for power to live this life on earth. And I'm also trusting you to provide for my soul for all eternity. Most Christians don't have any problem believing that God's got eternity controlled, right? I'm trusting my soul in his hands for all eternity. But we sometimes have trouble trusting him with the problems today on Earth. Like he's got eternity, but he really can't quite handle planet Earth. I think if he can handle eternity, he can handle today, right? So we can face these sorrows and the suffering of this life with confidence, When we're convinced that Jesus cares for us and He has the power to care for us. Actually, one of the reasons you should trust Jesus with your soul is because He cares for your soul better than you do. 1 Peter 5.7 says, Casting some of your anxiety upon Him because He cares for you when He's not on vacation. Is that what it says? Of course not. It says casting all, and you got a lot of it, and so do I, all your anxiety on him. You know the stuff that wakes you up at 2 a.m.? Yeah, and you can't get back to sleep? Casting all of that. It literally means to roll the weight onto his back, and don't take it back. Roll, let him carry it. Casting all your anxiety because he cares for you. We can trust our souls to the one, who has entrusted the gospel to us, which is an interesting play on words. Paul says, you trust your soul to him, and he entrusts the gospel to us, which tells us how we can spend eternity with him in heaven. So Paul's not ashamed of the gospel, and he's not afraid of suffering either, because he knew Jesus intimately. He says, he doesn't say, I know what I've believed, does it? What does your Bible say? I know who I have believed. The better you know Jesus, the more you will trust Him. If you're having problems with trust, you need to get to know Him better. The better you know Jesus, the more you will trust Him. It's hard to trust what you don't know. The more you know Him, the more you will trust Him. Which means maybe more time in your relationship with Him. Paul trusted Jesus every day, but quite frankly, the suffering that Paul endured on any given day didn't bother him. The last two words of this verse I find utterly interesting. He says, He is able to guard that which I've entrusted him until that day. That day. That day is the day of Jesus Christ or the day of Christ. That day is the day when we'll all stand before the judgment seat of Christ for rewards. By the way, in the ancient Olympic Games, the Olympics are coming up next year. In the ancient Olympic Games, when you won a race or a competition... You stepped up to a platform, and on that platform was a bench, and on the bench, the judges sat. And they awarded you the wreath, the olive wreath, the laurel wreath for first, second, or third place. That bench in in ancient Olympic Games was called the BEMA seat, B-E-M-A, BEMA. That meant judgment, and it's where the judges sat to award the first, second, third place for the Olympic competition. And Paul uses that phrase here, and he says, you're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, not for judgment. Our sins have been forgiven. None of us will stand before God's judgment seat for heaven or hell. That's been paid for. That's done. We're just talking about the rewards that Jesus will pass out, 1 Corinthians 3, based on our service. Matthew Henry said, it ought to be the business of every day to prepare for our last day. We should live lives like that. Just before his execution, as a matter of fact, Paul wrote to Timothy, this would be a great eulogy for any of us, 2 Timothy 4, 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, and for him that future was probably weeks away, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will to me on that day. He was talking about the bama seed. He was saying, I'm going to stand before Jesus, and he's going to reward me for my service. Paul organized every day of his life around the rewards of that day, and now he commands Timothy, he says, you follow me. You do the same thing. Verse 13. Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who indwells you the treasure which has been entrusted to you. Here's the principle. The greatest treasure in the world is God's word. We are to protect it from error and preserve it by proclaiming it everywhere. The greatest treasure in the world is God's word. We are to protect it from error and preserve it by proclaiming it everywhere. So through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul has written down God's word. He literally wrote 14 books of the New Testament, right? He not only wrote them, he taught them faithfully. And Paul says, you've watched how I've lived. You've heard how I've spoke. You've watched how I've behaved. I want you to follow the pattern that I laid down. It's a healthy pattern. It's a godly lifestyle. Paul had taught the whole counsel of God, the complete scripture and Paul says, Timothy, don't let your fear dilute the truth. Paul says, speak the whole truth, believe it by faith, say it with love, but preserve it from error, keep it accurate. Faith is confidence that God's word is true, and of course, love is speaking God's truth with kindness to those who need to hear it. I don't know if you asked people who don't know Jesus what the greatest treasure on earth would be. I imagine it would be something down here, right? Health. People say, well, if you don't have your health, you don't have anything. You know something? I don't care how good your health is. It's temporary. It's going away, right? And how much money you have or don't have, it's temporary. We're going to leave it all. So I recommend, and Scripture clearly teaches that if you're looking for treasure... Lay up treasures in heaven where they're eternal. The gospel is the greatest treasure on earth because it's the only thing that tells you how you can have eternal life. Only the Bible tells us that our sins can be forgiven through faith alone in Christ alone. Only the Bible tells us that we can go to heaven when we die if we repent and believe. It's the greatest treasure because it's the only way to the Father. Through Jesus Christ the Son. It's the only book. It's the mind of God, the heart of God, the love letter of God that tells us how we can have an eternal relationship with Him. And God has entrusted this treasure to you and me. I'm amazed at how much we take it for granted because it's freely available. Most of us have multiple Bibles in the home. There are Christians around the world who don't have access to the Scripture. They don't. We're a possession of the scripture as a capital offense. God says, I trusted you with this treasure and you are a steward of it. And I'm going to hold you accountable for how you manage it and how you share it and how you protect it and how you proclaim it. Paul says, Timothy, I'm passing this treasure on to you because I'm leaving. For you and I, one of the greatest responsibilities we have is to pass the truth of the gospel and the love of Jesus to those people in our lives. Could be family, could be friends, could be children, could be grandchildren, nieces, nephews, whatever it happens to be. We need to live the truth and speak the truth so that others can go to heaven with us. As many as possible, as the Lord has called. So Paul says, I'm passing this treasure unto you and you are to guard it because I am departing. Christians are responsible to guard God's truth uh, from being corrupted. You know, Satan has always been at war with the Bible. Satan has always tried to cast doubt on the scripture. Satan will try and destroy the Bible through addition. There are false prophets who say, well, the Bible is true, but we have these additional divine scriptures. The Book of Mormon, the Pearl of Great Price, Doctrines and Covenants. So there's additional scriptures on top of the Bible. That's not true. There, Satan will try and destroy it through deletion. I'm utterly intrigued that here about 30 years ago, the Reader's Digest came up with a version of the Bible where they gave you just the summary version. You know, the Reader's Digest version. I'm saying, well, every word is inspired by God. Every jot, every tittle, every letter, every punctuation. But what are you going to cut out? That's satanic deletion. Sounds really innocuous. It's not innocuous. It's lethal. Through dilution or through distortion. Satan always will try and corrupt the scripture, and Paul says, you speak the truth as God says it. One of the reasons I love our church family here at Valley Baptist is this leadership team that God has called and gifted us with, that this church is absolutely committed to speak the whole counsel of God. The truth. Whether we like it, whether we're comfortable, it's not the point. The point is, thus says the Lord, and then that is the straight edge, as Pastor Roger said, by which we are measured. We are know the truth so we can defend it from error. And God's people are to manage that. You know, we don't own anything, but I'm utterly intrigued that God has entrusted us with the greatest treasure of eternal life. And we represent God here on earth. And so as stewards, we are to use everything God gives us to manage in order to further the mission of the king. And one of the worst things you can do with this book is hide it. What did Jesus say? You are the light of the world. Do not hide that light under a bushel where no one can see it, but you put it on a lampstand so it's visible. So you, one of the best ways to protect the gospel is to proclaim it. Right? If you want it preserved for the next generation and the next generation, next generation, you need to proclaim it. You need to share it to the ends of the earth. Invest the gospel in the hearts of our children and our grandchildren, so that it will grow and produce much fruit for God's glory. Jesus kind of emphasized this two days before his death, 48 hours before he went to the cross, he told his disciples a parable. And this is a parable of the talents. And it was really about him. Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who's going away on a long journey. I mean, leaving home for months and months and months. And before he left, he went to his servants and he said, Look, I'm gonna entrust you with various assets and I want you to do business on my behalf when I'm gone. I want you to, to, to make things happen and take care of my estate and actually grow my estate when I'm gone. And he, he says he gave to one servant, five talents, one servant, two talents, and one servant, one talent. Now back in the day, a talent was an incredible amount of money, I mean, it was a huge asset. In our particular case, God entrusts us with money and relationships and spiritual gifts and skills, and jobs, and all these things he entrusts to us, and he wants us to manage them. Some people have five talents. Some people have two. Some people have one. Nobody has none. So It's easy for you and I to say, well, if God only gave me more, I'd be a better steward of it. No, let's, let's try being faithful with what we have, right? It's interesting. It says, the master came back after a long period of time, and the first Steward, servant, manages master's assets very well. And it said he multiplied the five talents into five more. He doubled his stewardship. Number two, doubled it from two to four. The third steward hid his master's talent and buried it in the ground where it could not grow. And when the master came back, what does it say? He commended the first two stewards. He says, you have been faithful with a little... I will give you more responsibility and you can manage more for me. And the steward who took the talent and buried it, the master said, You wicked, lazy steward. First time I thought that, I'm going, Wow, at least it didn't get stolen. Right? He buried it so it wouldn't get stolen. But it's pretty clear that Jesus is talking about himself. We're the servants. And he's given us these talents and these gifts and these abilities. He says, I'm leaving. I'm going back to heaven. I'm coming back. And between now and then, I want you to do business for me when I'm gone. And I expect growth. I want you to invest what I've given you and grow it. I want you to multiply souls for the kingdom by using the gifts and abilities I've given you. And the, the steward that didn't do that, it says the master took him, his talent away from him, and cast him into outer darkness. That's really, really, really sobering. Because I don't think anybody in this room says, God, I'm not going to use the gifts and abilities and talents you've given me. I don't think anybody in this room does that. You know, I think that happens. I think we get busy. Busy with the stuff of this life. God, I've got 63 emails i got to answer before I can get around to heavenly business. God, I've got three people I've got to interview. God, I've got some bills to pay. God, I've got the lawn to mow. And I'm not saying any that's not important. I'm not saying that. I'm saying the things of this life can crowd out the eternally important things. With the best of intentions, it can crowd out and we put our head on the pillow at 10 or 11 or whenever and we have the sense of, what did I do today that mattered? Not that you'll know, but was your intention to say, Lord, I want today to matter for eternity. I want to be used by you today to accomplish. Lord, the gifts and abilities you've given me and the relationships and wherever you've put me, use it today and multiply it for the glory of Jesus Christ and the blessing of the people around me. When you do that, he will multiply his power through you in ways that are amazing. And he has entrusted us with the means of eternal life. And you and I can carry that and transmit that to people who need it. Tremendous privilege. He commands us to proclaim the gospel so that many souls will be saved. Don't bury it. Give it away, give it away, give it away. He will show you this week how to do that. Okay, let's summarize. And then I'll ask Tom or Marty to come and lead us in prayer and praise. Uh, first principle, no Jesus, no life. No Jesus, no life, right? No. Number two, many of you are faithful and this is simply an encouragement. Keep doing what God has gifted and called you to do What you don't use, you will lose, and what you do use gets stronger. Number three, because we have been given God's divine power, we can proclaim the gospel without fear or shame. Number four, the better we know Jesus, the more we will trust him. The only safe place for your soul is in his hands. And lastly, the greatest treasure in the world is God's word. We are to protect it from error and preserve it by proclaiming it everywhere. Thank you all for coming. Thank you for listening. Know that I love you. And now that you know, do.